The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Part of Barack Obama's legacy were the dozens of agreements the Justice Department reached with local police departments. The accords were aimed at fixing what the administration saw as racially discriminatory policing and patterns of excessive force. Among them, a settlement with Baltimore in the aftermath of the 2015 death of Freddie Gray, a black man who died in police custody. But now Donald Trump's attorney general, Jeff Sessions, has ordered a sweeping review of those agreements. And yesterday, Justice Department lawyers asked a federal judge to postpone a hearing on the Baltimore agreement. With us to talk about what all this might mean is Amy Dillard. She is a law professor at the University of Baltimore School of Law. Amy, thanks for joining us. Can we just start by having you remind us what sorts of things are in these agreements, and in particular the, the one in your hometown of Baltimore? Yes. So when the Department of Justice um, negotiated the um, agreement uh, with the city of Baltimore, uh, it did that cooperatively, meaning there are career Justice Department lawyers and then constituents in Baltimore like residents and the police union and the Baltimore Police Department. Um, you know, it was an extensive investigation that came out about a year ago that revealed revealed serious constitutional violations. Um, and the Department of Justice found that those undermined the trust and public safety of the community. So the agreement is one for oversight. Um, in particular, there was an agreement that there would be com- a community oversight task force. There would also be an independent federal monitor over the police department and then um, required training for officers um, uh, on issues of implicit bias. Those are just three highlights from the agreement. Um, but as you can see, it's a fairly light footprint that the federal government would have um, had in Baltimore, especially in light of the really serious problems in Baltimore. Well, what is it that Jeff Sessions is concerned about? He sent out a two-page memo to some top DOJ officials. What What is he talking about there? Well, so his memo basically sets out new priorities um, for the Justice Department in um overseeing local uh, and state law enforcement. And he stated explicitly that um, the Department of Justice would have a new priority to promote police morale and help bolster public respect for officers. And then he adds to that, while protecting Americans' civil rights. Um, And so you can just see from the simple drafting that he is, you know, putting out front um, the need to promote police morale and um, bolster public respect for officers, and then almost as an afterthought, um, protecting Americans' um, civil rights. He he also said that he wanted, you know, the, the Department of Justice position and the administration's position is that there should be local control and local accountability over um, police departments, and that it was not the responsibility of the federal government to manage state and local law enforcement. So it's a very different, um, I don't even want to say agenda, but just approach from um, the Loretta Lynch Justice Department, which oversaw the consent decree that 
has been negotiated in Baltimore, uh, was negotiated by um, Vanita Gupta, um, you know, where the goal was to do a thorough investigation of um, Baltimore policing, listening to citizens, listening to residents, listening to populations that are generally underrepresented in these investigations you know, of particular interest. Um, there, and it's at the end of the investigation report, there were a lot of allegations about Baltimore police officers um, coming into contact with women who had been trafficked from both inside the United States and abroad. Uh, who were trying to report that they were victims of trafficking. And uh, they alleged that rather than um, the police department officers helping them, the police department officers instead uh, agreed not to arrest them uh, if they would uh, exchange sexual favors for free. Amy, we only have about a minute left, but tell me about what the impact of this review could be. These agreements are kind of in different stages. Some of them are are finalized. Some of them are are court uh, consent decrees. What's what's going to happen here? So the one in Baltimore was set for a final signature when the um, DOJ lawyers asked the federal judge yesterday for a 90-day extension to review and possibly renegotiate the agreement with the Baltimore police. And what that means is that the judge could sign off on the agreement as it is, or he could wait and see if there's a different agreement that's reached between the Department of Justice and Baltimore Police. And, and how about agreements uh, elsewhere, like like Chicago, for example? That's a tentative agreement, right? Could that whole thing be, yes, be scrapped? it is. And it is the same way that the agreement in Baltimore is tentative. That is, it hasn't been signed off by a federal judge yet. You're listening to Bloomberg Law, and we are talking about the H-1B visa program and steps the Trump administration is taking to crack down on what sees as fraud and abuse. Our guests are Caitlin Weber of Bloomberg Intelligence and Ron Hira of Howard University. Uh, Ron, I, I want to get in a second get into the possibility we, you know, Congress may step in here. But tell me, um, are there other shoes that could drop just in terms of what the administration uh, might do to uh, make changes to the H-1B program? Well, I think there's a. This is frankly for for those folks who have wanted and asked for change. This is a bit disappointing. It's kind of underwhelming. Uh, there are major problems with the with the program, and and these are kind of small uh, steps, maybe necessary steps to step up enforcement. But there's much more that the administration should be doing in terms of uh, writing regulations, uh, issuing new policy guidance, and uh, uh, and the like, um, in order to tighten things up. They can do a lot on their own, even without Congress, uh, like raising wage levels, um, and and the Department of Labor could be involved in, in enforcement. So there's a number of things that they can and should be doing. Um, these are small steps in the right direction, but they're very small steps. Caitlin, you sent me a note earlier today saying you saw growing prospects for Congress to get involved. Are we talking about a bipartisan push, or is this going to be uh, the kind of uh, you know Republican-led effort that we're we're getting used to seeing? Yeah, this is actually a rare area where there is bipartisan support for cracking down on some of these alleged abuses. Um, And there's even bipartisan support for curtailing access to the visas by some of these larger IT outsourcing firms based in India. Um, There are a number of proposals out right now. Um, Many of them focus on getting at alleged abuse by focusing on wages. Um, Right now, the average H-1B wages around $80,000. A lot of people argue that's too low. It should at least be six figures. 
a Republican named Daryl Issa has a proposal that would require a $100,000 minimum H-1B wage. Um, a Democrat, Zoe Lofgren, who represents Silicon Valley, has another way, another bill that would require some employers to pay $130,000. And then there's also been proposals to change the way the lottery is run. Right now it's random. It's just assigned by computer. But to assign the... Um, to assign the visas really to where there is a, a is a need for more specialty workers, where there really is a dearth, and then also, or to assign them in terms of to the companies that pay the highest wages. Ron, what do you see as the prospects for the, those sorts of changes? Is, is there enough of a consensus that can happen, or is this going to potentially get caught up in you know what, what could be a much bigger fight over uh, other aspects of the nation's immigration laws? Well, I, I'd say a couple of things. One is I think that a lot of people in Congress are waiting for the Trump administration to give a signal of what they're trying to accomplish, both on the executive side, but also in terms of what they're going to push on the legislative side. Um, there's a bill uh, that's been introduced by Grassley and Durbin, which is a bipartisan bill in the Senate and it has a companion uh, in, the, in the House. And that one is probably the closest to fixing the real problems. The minimalist bills like uh, Daryl Issa's bill uh, really uh, don't solve any of the real problems. In fact, it won't change much uh, behavior. It does not actually raise the minimum wage to 100000 um, and that's been misreported quite a bit. So some of this is clouded, um, but I think a lot of it, the, the ball's in, in President Trump's court right now. Um, this the politics of this are more complicated. They fall along more populist elite lines than they do across party lines. Uh, Caitlin, we only have about 30 seconds left, but let me ask you the same question I asked Ron. Uh, is this going to get caught up in bigger questions about immigration? That's really the biggest hurdle is this being associated with um, a path to citizenship for undocumented immigrants. I mean, in the past, Congress has really wanted to tackle immigration reform on a comprehensive basis, and there's much, much less bipartisan support for some of those other measures um, targeting you know, lower-wage workers than there are for the H-1B program. Okay, well, we will look forward to talking with both of you about this uh, going forward because it sounds like we're going to have a lot to talk about. Ron Hira of Howard University, Caitlin Weber of Bloomberg Intelligence, thanks for joining us on Bloomberg Law. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.